Okay, go ahead. I was just waiting for the um, the voice. Usually it comes <laughs> up on my screen and then I can say, are you sitting comfortably? I'll begin, but it hasn't done that this week. So are you sitting comfortably? I shall begin. Okay. Um, I'll try as um, normal to keep uh, my remarks to within the hour. Um, I'm not, it needs to be um, emphasised, trying to cover every new item domestically or internationally. So I'm just picking out um, uh, a few select uh, items that I think, um, you know, uh, require um, our comment and also um, discussion so that we can um, exchange uh, views. So I'm going to begin um, with what I would guess was a pre-planned um, UN, you know, um, IPCC um, announcement in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow. Um, I don't think they suddenly discovered something. I think that this would be, um, we need to keep uh, jockeying and pressurizing governments. That's my guess. And therefore we have the news, which really shouldn't surprise any of us. It certainly doesn't surprise me that um, there's a, a distinct danger that um, the world will enter into a situation of where we have um, an, a, a global increase in temperature um, of 1.5 degrees centigrade. Now that is above um, pre-industrial levels. So roughly speaking, pre-industrial is before 1850, but in reality, uh, we all know that um, that was mainly uh, Britain. Um, either way, um, 2025 is a, an extraordinarily worrying uh, time frame because um, at COP21 uh, in Paris in 2015, um, I, I don't know how many governments signed up uh, to the Paris Agreement. If you look at one site, you get one figure. If you look at another site, you get a different figure. Sometimes it says government, sometimes it says parties. Either way, it was over 190. Uh, it could be as high as 195, uh, but let's leave that one aside. But what we had is 190 plus signatures agreeing to limit global temperature rises to well below, and I'm quoting, well below two degrees centigrade. Uh, and the target uh, date for that was uh, 2030. Um, and what the statement continued to say is that the target would actually be 1.5 degrees. That's what they thought that they could limit themselves to. This is by 2030. So here we are. Um, in 2021, uh, and uh, the UN um, is warning that we might actually hit that, how should you put it, um, that target five years early. And of course, what they're worried about um, is that then we carry on. And that, that precisely is the message. It's not that uh, come 2025 uh, and you arrive at 1.5 um, um, degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, and then it just um, evens out and we're on some sort of plateau. Uh, no, actually what they're saying is that the rate of um, increase is far steeper than they originally uh, feared. Uh, and we look set uh, to achieve, it's not really the right word, uh, but achieve 2.7 degrees uh, centigrade above pre-industrial levels in 2050. Now, 
you know, you and me, you know, we might uh, look out out of our windows, go outdoors for a walk. And quite frankly, you know, I certainly wouldn't notice the difference in terms of 1.5 uh, degrees centigrade, you know, between one hour and the next. I just wouldn't notice it. And I suspect that's also true uh, with 2.7 uh, degrees. But we know now, you know, from um, climate scientists that, that these what seem seems to be to a human being in terms of our normal, you know, day to day uh, activity to be tiny, almost imperceptible. Uh, differences actually has a profound impact um, on the global climate uh, system uh, and they have a profound impact not just on a year-to-year -year, uh, basis but a profound impact over hundreds and thousands of years. So if we achieve, and I'm again emphasizing, I'm using that word in inverted commas, if we achieve 2.7 degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels, what you, what you get is a situation of where whatever you do after that, um, the ice sheets uh, in the Antarctic and uh, the Arctic continue to melt. Um, in other words, instead of actually accumulating or maintaining uh, water in the form of ice, uh, what happens is that uh, that, wa that water is released and that will continue uh, for something like uh, a thousand years. As I said, whatever you do, um, that, just, uh, that just continues. And of course, what happens is, is you get a feedback uh, mechanism once you reach there um, that... Um, uh, you know, water levels uh, keep rising, um, the permafrost keeps melting, and in the process, of course, what you get is the release of CO2, but crucially, uh, in this context, uh, methane, which adds uh, to the warming uh, process. So in terms of... Um, you know, where the world is, it's in a very unhappy uh, place. Now, I, I, as I said, I, I think that this particular announcement was uh, um, timed, timed uh, in the run-up to Glasgow in order to uh, provide a sense of urgency. Um, and we, uh, we have, um, or have had, uh, Boris Johnson in Washington meeting Joe Biden, and there's various meetings going on uh, between various uh, governments and groups of, of governments in the run-up uh, to COP26. Uh, My guess for what it's worth, and I'm not an insider, uh, is that they will find it uh, quite easy to come to some sort of agreement on methane. Uh, because methane is released not only from uh, permafrost uh, melting, but um, also from uh, landfill sites, um, from gas and oil um, drilling, and from farty, burpy uh, cattle. Um, I don't know what you're going to do about burpy, farty uh, cattle. Um, you know, I've read various schemes that you feed them this and you do that, but... Uh, Quite frankly, if the world remains, um, you know, on uh, this beef diet um, that it's got got into, um, I don't see anything much being done there. But on the other hand, landfill sites you can deal with. They should be sealed. If they're not properly sealed, you can seal them. Um, when it comes to oil and gas, um, this is because of poor management. Uh, and if you put in place the necessary measures, uh, you can stop methane uh, escaping. So this is this is doable. And um, various reports that I've uh, read talk about uh, a reduction in methane by something like 40%. Uh, percent. Uh, as I said, that, that's quite easy. Should be stressed, of course, that um, methane in terms of a greenhouse gas um, is... Um, Again, sorry for my lack of science, uh, but uh, the figures I've come, come across 
uh, either tell me it's 40 times more potent than CO2 or 80 times or even 84 times. I don't know if the scientists are unsure of it, uh, but that's why I'm unsure of it, because I've read a number of different figures. But you get the idea that this is a much more uh, dangerous gas uh, than CO2. On the other hand, it also, um, how should I put it, uh, dissipates um, far quicker uh, than uh, CO2. Either way, um, what, what do we expect uh, from Glasgow? Um, my expectation, forgive the pun, is an awful lot of hot air. Um, I think we will see some pledges around, as, as I've indicated, methane, uh, but quite frankly, I don't really see uh, much else uh, coming um, um, from it. You'll get an awful lot of um, uh, chest thumping um, from Boris Johnson, um, basically boasting uh, that Britain is leading the world when it comes to the reduction of um, CO2 and uh, other greenhouse uh, gases. But the reality of that, um, you know, needs uh, a bit of poking into. Um, it's not because uh, any government in Britain has taken any meaningful um, action. I mean, you could, uh, you know, conceding a point there, uh, look at... Um, the transition, it's not total, but it is not insignificant to solar panels, even in a dull country like Britain. I'm not talking about its culture, but uh, its lack of sunshine um, and also wind power. And uh, at the moment I look out my window and I know uh, because of various other stories in the, in the in the news media that it hasn't been blowing much and it hasn't been very sunny either. Either way, the main contribution to Britain's success um, here is the class war. Uh, and that had nothing to do with the climate. This is the class war conducted by the Tory government against the National Union of Miners and the successful closure of uh, deep mining in Britain. Uh, and then the transition, yes, uh, to gas um, and uh, later to um, wind and solar, but also um, a considerable contribution from nuclear. And also it should be pointed out, um, uh, you know, deep sea cables joining uh, Britain and France, joining Britain and Norway, uh, where they can um, channel surplus um, electrical power uh, from Norway. Norway is one of the biggest producers of electricity, by the way, on the planet. And France has an overcapacity uh, when it comes to uh, nuclear uh, power. So in other words, what I'm arguing um, is that Britain really hasn't done anything. And um, I mean, I'll just illustrate the point um, by looking at one of their uh, solutions, which is uh, electric vehicles, which strike me as much more window dressing and a business opportunity for the uh, car manufacturers including, of course, uh, Telsa, um, Elon Musk, um, basically to re-equip um, car fleets, um, lorry fleets, um, and scrap old ones. Um, and of course, this is done in the name of uh, the green economy, the future. But to me, it's just a load of um, bogus uh, nonsense. I mean, tell me you know what these cars run on and you'll answer electricity what's the electric how, how's the electricity generated well there is a contribution yes when it's blowing uh, from the wind there is a contribution when it's sunny uh, um, you know from uh, the sun on the other hand uh, most electricity in britain is generated uh, using uh, gas and oil and uh, that releases co2 what's the still uh, that they make these cars. How, how is that made? And if anyone tells me, well, that's again made with electricity. Well, there's a truth there, but it's also made with coal. How do they dig it up? What about the glass? What about the tires? What about the computer chips? Just carry on looking at the components and the various elements of a car. And you're not talking about carbon uh, neutral. Uh, <laughs> clearly not. Um, so I, I just don't buy that. And, um, you know, to really put a, a significant dent 
um, into CO2 emissions to get the uh, line of march going away uh, from two, you know, 1.5 in 2025 and 2.7 in 2050. What you have to do, as far as I can see it, and that's what the scientists uh, are telling us, is basically you have to do something about the car economy. You cannot have the car economy. You've got to do something about air, air flight. You've got to do something about shipping. You've got to do something uh, about the, the nature of the farming uh, that we conduct. You know, there, there you are, you're growing grain in order to feed cattle, um, as opposed to grow grain in order to feed human beings. And of course, the cattle, as I've indicated, fart and burp um, and do all sorts of um, other things. So no government uh, that I know of has done anything significant yet. Uh, my argument is, though, uh, and this is just an argument for the sake of setting up uh, uh, a hypothesis, is that sooner or later, governments have to do something. Whether they can or not, that's a different uh, uh, question, because what uh, runaway uh, climate change um, promises um, is basically a collapse um, of the existing civilization. I mean, all you need to do is Google you know, what cities are under threat of inundation? And we're not talking about sea levels rising, um, you know, by 50 meters, but you're talking about the sort of temp, uh, sea, sea level rises that you would expect to, to uh, result uh, from 1.5. And you get a list that goes something like this, Jakarta, which as I understand it, uh, the Indonesian government is basically giving up on as we speak. Uh, they're building a new capital. Uh, that isn't going to be, um, you know, um, flooded um, throughout the monsoon, monsoon season. Uh, you're talking about Dhaka. Uh, you're talking about Lagos uh, being inundated. You're talking about Houston in Texas being inundated. You're talking about Miami in Florida. You're talking about uh, New Orleans. Uh, you're talking about Rotterdam. You're talking about The Hague. And I'm sorry, uh, you're also talking uh, about Venice. Um, you know, they're not going to be in a position like they were in Egypt with uh, Abu Simbel of, you know, raising uh, um, this, um, you know, monument of past achievements and moving it up the hillside uh, as they did, as they flooded uh, Lake Nasser. Um, Venice just goes below, beneath the waves. Um, that's what we're talking about. So when we look at uh, the recent protests that have been in Britain by Extinction Rebellion and insulate uh, Britain, I mean, they've been sitting down on motorways. Uh, they've taken over um, Oxford Circus in the middle of uh, London. And what they're demanding is governments must do something. Well, my fear is that simply demanding that governments must do something um, creates the conditions uh, for what I've called um, climate socialism. And what I mean by climate socialism has got nothing to do with proletarian socialism, or it, it, it sh shouldn't be thought of as some sort of um, evolutionary step uh, towards proletarian socialism. Uh, military, uh, um, excuse me, um, climate socialism should be thought of as related to proletarian socialism, but it should also be thought of as the polar opposite of proletarian socialism. It's, it's both at the same time, because what a, uh, um, a climate socialism introduced by a bourgeois government, i.e. by a bourgeois state, would result in, in my view, is an attack on the living standards of the working class masses, an attack on our democratic rights, all sorts of um, restrictions, yes, on industry, the direction of industry, um, all sorts of permits, but also all sorts of opportunities uh, for those with close connections with the state um, to corrupt and to basically amass not small fortunes, but, uh, um, you know, breathtaking uh, fortunes. So, yes, 
um, you know, um, something has to be done, uh, but don't imagine um, that when governments, if governments uh, start to act, they're going to be acting um, in the interests of common humanity. Uh, they will be acting in the interests of the state uh, and the interests of um, um, those with close connections to, um, to the government. And so where did this idea come from? Well, of course, it's lifted straight from the uh, Kriegssozialismus uh, of the German high command in 1916, uh, which of course involved all sorts of draconian restrictions on the working class, um, uh, uh, the drafting in of prisoners of war into industry, and one can just carry on. It had nothing to do with um, extending um, popular control or workers' control, quite the opposite. And that's why I say it's related uh, to proletarian socialism in the sense that here's the outer limit um, of uh, capitalist society. Uh, this is capitalist society uh, in extremis because what it's doing is it's suspending uh, the law of value. Um, it's directing um, um, industry. Uh, it's delivering um, on the basis of need, uh, not profit. But it needs to be understood that although we're using the word socialism, what we're talking about is a form of uh, capitalism. Anyway, uh, as I said, to me, while I um, admire and uh, have, you know, great sympathy uh, for Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, my fear is because they don't have a programme, because they don't have a program that links in with socialism, the working class, it can create the ideological conditions, uh, to use a phrase from the 19th century, for a man on, the, on a white horse. Now, whether that man on a white horse, um, you know, comes on a horse or with a tank, uh, we can leave uh, aside uh, for the moment. The last thing I want to say on um, the climate, and that's something that Biden and uh, Johnson um, have been talking about is how to put more pressure on China. Uh, because, of course, China is still building coal-fired um, um, stations, it's still building oil-powered stations, and says it will continue to build more uh, of them. China's argument is, well, we've only just industrialized. You lot have been around since the mid-19th century, kicking out CO2. Uh, we've only just begun. Chinese people deserve a better living standard. Um, okay. We also need to add the point uh, that uh, whatever success Britain has had, for example, um, I've already mentioned the miners, has also been achieved in, in this field um, basically by offshoring production. And so the pollution happens in China uh, as opposed to Birmingham and Manchester and London. Um, so really, we need to emphasize that this is actually about capitalism and not about this or that uh, country. It's why, uh, personally, I would argue that the word Anthropocene um, really shouldn't be used because it, it, it conveys the picture uh, that this is just the fault of human beings. Well, I think actually that what we need to talk about is a capitalocene uh, because it's the drive for profit. It's the drive for production for the sake of production um, that we're really talking about and just putting in a bracket. The Soviet Union in that respect, although it was not driven by profit, was not fundamentally uh, different. The target system was utterly irrational and it took on the appearance and you could even argue the reality of production for the sake of production, uh, even though the political economy uh, was radically uh, different. Okay, moving on. Got to learn how to pronounce this, I think. Alcus, uh, the alliance between, sorry, yeah, Stan is impressed by that because I normally take at least good six months uh, to learn a new word. I always remember with Soviet general secretaries, it took me about the time they, till they died uh, to learn how to pronounce their names. Anyway. Uh, this is the alliance between Australia, the UK and US. 
and of course what this is involved is a cancellation of an Australian order for attack submarines um, from France. And I think I've read various figures, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I've read that that was worth, um, the contract there was worth something like 30 billion pounds. Um, and of course that has been canceled. And what we now have is an agreement by the United States and Britain uh, to give Australia um, new technology, i.e. Uh, nuclear uh, technology. And um, this will um, also involve building uh, nuclear submarines. Now, I'm not sure of the details. I mean, is the technology about uh, Australian maintenance and repair? Um, is it about Australia part manufacturing? Uh, these uh, submarines, I don't know. It needs to be emphasized, of course, that we're not talking about nuclear missiles here. We're not talking about warheads. Um, I think that these submarines will have cruise missiles on them, uh, but I could be wrong. Either way, uh, what we've seen here um, is, I suppose, not a surprising uh, development when it comes to strategy. Because, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, uh, what's happening with Australia? Um, I would say that what we had is George Osborne um, on steroids. Remember George Osborne's, um, you know, alliance and loving with China and, you know, how we're going to boom together. Well, that's what actually happened in um, Australia. So huge amounts of Australian metals go to China, huge amounts of Australian coal, Australia produces massive amount of coal, goes to um, China. And of course, then you come down to um, things like Australian wine. Uh, the, the Chinese developed a taste for you know, Australian wine. So a big chunk of Australian wine goes to China. And then the relationship goes sour as the United States, the global hegemon, basically turns around and says, well, China's been cheating on us. Um, it joined the WTO, uh, but it didn't allow uh, us to take over Chinese banks and Chinese industry. That's the agreement in the WTO rules. Therefore, they cheated on us. And what we have is a strategic rival. And you see them cut out um, um, you know, Chinese technology when it comes to phones. I mean, utterly irrational. We're not just talking about 5G. I mean, you're talking about dismantling of much equipment. Uh, uh, in Britain and other countries that are aligned with uh, the United States. And, and the fact that they went along with that, of course, brought retaliation. Interestingly, it, it tends to be, China's strategy seems to be uh, that we, we don't take on the global hegemon in a direct confrontation, but we'll punish its um, um, closer allies. So Britain uh, can be punished, Australia can be punished. So China turned around uh, when this stuff was going on. So we won't, we won't have your wine then. We won't have your coal. We won't have your metal. Um, China buys it maybe presumably or you know, more expensively elsewhere. And that's had a, a, a genuine impact um, on Australia. And, and we should expect that impact uh, to deepen. So Australia's made a choice, you know, you know, where as I said, 10 years ago, you might have thought, well, its future lies in Asia. I think that's what Australian prime ministers were saying. Uh, it's now definitely um, its future lies, at least for the foreseeable future, in alliance with uh, the United States. And British politicians can talk about the Anglo sphere, but in reality, we're not, not really talking about an alliance with Britain. We're talking about an alliance with the global hegemon. And of course, that's produced a sharp response from China. Uh, you can understand it because uh, this is clearly directed at China. It's about upgrading Australia militarily so it can fight in a war. And I think you had that from the Australian defense minister when he was asked, um, is war with China possible? Instead of giving a diplomatic reply and saying, well, of course, the, these new submarines make war with China, uh, much less likely uh, and precisely will act as a deterrent and therefore they are uh, peace bringers. Instead of saying that, he turned around 
to the journalists and said, yeah, war with China is possible. Um, so clearly these uh, attack submarines are part of a grander plan, but they're also part of a wider strategic uh, repositioning. Uh, and of course, what is also interesting in that respect is not just the immediate French response, but the sort of um, wider response from the EU, including Germany uh, to this one, because uh, I think it was the French foreign minister that talked about treachery. I don't know who's meant to be the traitor here. Um, um, either way, one would guess that it's Australia, um, but it could be Britain, it could be the United States. Um, either way, they're more than miffed. And we've seen uh, their miffness uh, taking the form of uh, the withdrawal of ambassadors um, from Washington and London. And we've also, interestingly, in terms of Germany, um, we've had protests from Germany as well. And I think what was, what was amusing to me is that the French describe Britain, this proves that Britain is nothing but an American poodle. I agree, absolutely, that's what it does. You know, if you look at Trident, Trident missile that they're still building, this is an American system with an American finger on the button. It's not independent, that's a nonsense. And the reality of Britain's contribution to the Australian thing has got nothing to do uh, with Botany Bay and uh, British prisoners going to Australia and family ties. It's to do with America. OK, but I asked the question, well, if Britain is uh, America's poodle, an accurate description, what does that make France and Germany? Um, it, it, they're beneath poodles. I don't know what is beneath a poodle. Uh, but that's where France and Germany is, and they know it. And the precise problem they've got is that because of the EU constitution, because it's federal and uh, uncentralized and almost uncentralizable, uh, what's it going to do about um, its army? What's it going to do about uh, its uh, manufacture uh, of arms? Where's it going to go? Uh, and that really does pose you. Uh, the problem in a in a sharp way. I mean, uh, if Europe, which it could do, uh, was going to replace the United States, which I think is a much more realistic prospect than China, of course, it would have to overthrow the EU constitution. It would have to have an army and it would have to have a centralised uh, bureaucracy. OK, um, just a couple of notes on um, China. Um, this is just a sort of flag um, exercise. We've had the government in China basically allowing the biggest um, real estate uh, company to go bust. That seems to be what's going on. This seems to be part of a wider uh, turn in China against, um, you know, online uh, businesses. Uh, but also, I, you know, I, this is me um, speculating, but also surely it's, it's also to do with um, Z and uh, this line that he's um, banging away at. It goes back some way, but this is, this is the ruling mantra uh, of the moment, uh, common prosperity. And what that, what's happened with that, uh, and again, this should be food for thought for it people who already have the answers before they look at the facts. Um, and that is that uh, this common prosperity line has gone hand in hand with beefing up the um, discipline uh, department in the Chinese Communist Party and an investigation by this uh, discipline department into the wives, the husbands, the sons, the daughters, the nieces, the nephews, the uncles, the aunts of top Chinese officials, including on the Central Committee and the Politburo. So the idea uh, that what we're dealing here when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party is nothing more than a Chinese version of the Tory party or Chinese version of the Republican or Democrat party, uh, I, I think that that's um, just um, untenable, it's an untenable um, argument. 
Of course, there is an interweaving, uh, but precisely here's uh, the regime. I take it uh, that this is uh, genuine and not uh, just an, uh, a cynical move to purge opponents. Um, I take this as part of an overall package to take China somewhere. Um, whether that's sustainable, uh, that's an entirely uh, different uh, question. What the actual dynamics uh, of China are, uh, that's a different question. But nevertheless, it's not a simple uh, question. Okay, moving on very quickly, the reshuffle, well, there you are, Rab is now um, Deputy Prime Minister. I shrug my shoulders. Worth noting Gove uh, being given the evening up um, portfolio. Um, worth noting um, Nadine um, Doris uh, culture. Uh, I would say that her department is much better titled Department of Philistinism now, but leave that one aside. But what should be noted is uh, various comments by um, Northern Tory MPs that they want to see what does what does what does leveling up actually mean in terms of policy uh, decisions? Well, apparently the Treasury has already told Michael Gove that there's no real extra money. So I can tell these Tory uh, MPs what levelling up means. It's a slogan. That's all it is. It's a slogan that for, for election time, it, it's got no, no content uh, to it. It sounds good. You can fool enough of the people enough of the time. That's it. Uh, there ain't going to be levelling up. Um, you're not going to have a situation of where life expectancy in Glasgow is going to be the same as it is in Knightsbridge, or wealth is going to be the same in Glasgow as it's in Knightbridge, or for that matter, Middlesbrough. Uh, no, uh, that ain't going to happen. And all you need to do, and I'll finish with that one, this is, this is directed at, um, we've got a rail faction inside the CPGB. Um, all you need to do is look at HS2 and how it's now being um, rolled back it's going to be um, London, Birmingham, Manchester. Um, and what amuses me about all of this is that the, the, the very comrades I'm talking about, and please join in the discussion, uh, the, the, two, the last two discussions I've had with them is one comrade coming from uh, Liverpool to a picket of the Labour Party and uh, aiming there to get, get there. I don't know, I'm just making up the time, but say 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, arrives after the action is over because the train from Liverpool was delayed and another comrade trying to get to Liverpool from a, to a demonstration turn, doesn't turn up because the train is cancelled. Um, it does strike me precisely that here we are, we have a vanity project called HS2 that's meant to be about the north. Well, it sort of just about reaches there, but this is not going to transform things. Meanwhile, the real, the real rail network uh, is malfunctioning. Uh, that's, the, that's the reality um, um, of it. And I don't really see that uh, changing anytime soon. Okay, meanwhile, this is just again throwing out some stuff. We have all sorts of stories about um, Russia and gas. I'm sure Russia is um, um, you know, wagging its tail at the moment with uh, gas prices shooting up. That would be good for its economy. But we also have uh, Brexit shortages. We have lorry driver shortages and therefore goods shortages. Various people ain't getting their weekly work are delivered on time. I suspect that's because people have been poaching from Royal Mail. We also have inflation picking up. We also have energy firms going bust for last week, four energy firms in this free market that isn't a free market going bust. And the weirdest one to me was when I read um, CO2 shortage. This is, a, you know, this is in the context, of course, not of um, global warming, uh, but beer, medical procedures, um, all sorts of um, farm uh, procedures, you know, uh, i.e. we're talking about canisters of um, CO2, shortage of CO2 uh, because of gas. Um, um, either way, 
um, th this is, uh, as you put it, uh, the perfect storm, isn't it? Uh, because you're seeing a combination of all sorts of factors, people going back to Europe, people not coming over uh, um, from Europe, um, the pandemic, um, but also um, the sort of chaos of, um, uh, of uh, you know, Brexit regulations uh, and all the rest of it. Okay, that was just a sort of wavy. Another wavy one, I, I don't know the details um, of it. We've got a comrade that can read the same language as um, the sort of lingua franca of um, Afghanistan. So we're trying to find out, you know, all about this split in the Taliban uh, because there's all sorts of people disappearing, stories about, you know, shootouts in the presidential palace in Kabul. Um, splits along the lines of how you treat uh, women in, in some areas controlled by the Taliban. Girls are not allowed to go to school, haven't been going to school for the last 20 years. Uh, meanwhile, the government in Kabul announces uh, that girls can go to school, but they aren't going to school. Uh, what's going on? Um, you've got stories about one wing, let me get it right, the Khani, uh, wing which stayed in Afghanistan that didn't go off negotiating with the Americans that did the fighting, falling out with the ones that did the negotiating. Of course, the ones that did the negotiating want to come over as all nicey-nicey, and maybe they looked at life in uh, Arabia and said, well, it isn't awful, is it? Um, anyway, either way, there seemed to be some falling out. Now, what I would emphasize about that, my own guess for what it's worth, is that the Taliban will not provide a stable government for all of Afghanistan. Um, I don't think that's because outside powers want that situation. It's just that it's not uh, achievable. And so we've got at the moment China offering aid and delivering aid where America isn't. We've got uh, the visits by numerous Pakistani officials, not least from the security service uh, to Kabul. Um, but my expectation would be the fragmentation of um, Afghanistan, because, of course, it's poor. It's uh, reliant on foreign aid, I think something like by 40 percent of its budget. And it isn't a nation. Um, you know, it, it, its unity is much more due to where the Russian Empire stopped and where the British uh, drew a line. Um, you know, against the Russians coming down further. So it was a sort of buffer zone between the British Raj and the expanding Russian empire. And uh, anything in between those two basically became Afghanistan. Um, so an, an impoverished country, uh, a country that's reliant on foreign aid, that's surrounded by um, much more powerful uh, states is much more likely uh, to fragment. We shall see. Either way, it looks horrendous um, if you're an ordinary Afghanistani. Okay, just uh, two more items. Might say farce uh, to begin with. Uh, the Royals, you've got Harry Windsor writing a book. I'm sure he's got a ghostwriter you know, about his experience being a royal and his sort of malfunctioning relationship with um, his father. Um, his father does strike me as rather a uh, wet fish. Um, but meanwhile, uh, in terms of the father, what we have is the scandal um, surrounding his prince's trust. Um, this is a charity. I've never seen anyone out on the streets uh, rattling a tin for the princesses, the princesses, for the prince's trust. Um, how this charity works is basically um, through rich people making donations and rich people make donations in a very rich way. Uh, they like to be with the right people and lots of them like to be called by fancy names. And um, apparently Charles Windsor has a particular liking for foreigners as long as they are billionaires. So he likes Greek billionaires. He likes American billionaires. He likes Saudi Arabian billionaires. He likes Russian billionaires. And he goes on their yachts. He goes to their islands. 
He loves entertaining them. And of course, what's happened uh, in terms of his uh, prince's trust is that if you give a million quid, um, that will give you access to the prince and maybe even a British um, honour. So you, you become an honorary sir or something along uh, those lines. And of course, we've had people resigning or stepping down uh, from various positions. So his chief fundraiser has had to step down and so is his uh, chief, um, his executive director has also stepped down. But the reality is, of course, it goes to the man at the top. And I've just been reading his uh, biographer, um, who's basically making that point. Look, the guy's 72 years old. He's not a child. Uh, you know, he, he should know. I know he's not the most intelligent person. I know we've had arguments. Um, we had a comrade doing a, an article on the guy and said he's very intelligent. I did question him about this. Uh, but he said, well, he's very intelligent compared with Prince Andrew, Andrew Windsor. So I said, well, yeah, you've got a point there. He, he's certainly intelligent compared with uh, Prince uh, Andrew. But here's someone who went to Cambridge um, who didn't exactly get, um, how should you put it, uh, top, top, top um, A-level results in spite of his um, top, top, top uh, public school and no doubt plenty of private uh, tutoring um, on the way. So there's a bit of a stink um, over the future monarch and talking about his brother we have the farcical horrible um, um, dragging out of um, this um, sex scandal uh, with Andrew um, now I don't know the ins and outs of it but as I understand it although there are allegations about uh, her time in Britain you know with the famous picture that was meant to be a fake I'll come off it and uh, I, I saw the interview on BBC uh, with Andrew. He remembers going out that night to get a pizza. Uh, come on, this is just, well, BS, uh, to put it uh, politely. But he cannot remember this uh, young woman, uh, even though this picture has gone viral. Of course, you wouldn't remember that, would you? This is just not credible. So we've had... Um, um, Andrew refusing uh, to appear in court, refusing quite clearly to cooperate with the investigation by the FBI, fighting it every inch, and of course spending in the process uh, a small fortune. Who's supplying the money? I don't know. Ultimately, I suppose you could argue it's you and me, uh, but I've read um, in terms of the latest round, and this is before it actually gets to a trial of any sort, um, you know, something like 600,000 quid um, goes to the lawyers. Um, you know, if he's innocent, why doesn't he just appear in court? Um, and uh, here's the facts, you know, his, his movements would be monitored, there will be a diary of some sort. Um, well, my suspicion, sorry, uh, I know people are innocent until they're proved guilty but it does, um, to me, uh, look like there's a case uh, to be um, answered um, here. And of course, what we're talking about is an offence, not in Britain, I don't know what all the details are, uh, but also in the United States. So she was purported, well, she was 17, that's the story. But in America, that's illegal to have sex with someone who's 17. Um, anyway, what else have we got that? Okay, lastly, because um, we um, advertised the uh, week in politics um, and we've got about a quarter of an hour left, keep it under that if I can, um, on the um, Labour Party, we had a big picture of Keir Starmer, um, they're still with the Labour Party conference. Well, I've got, not got much to say to tell the truth because things don't look very good. Uh, we've got, well, there's an article by Ken Loach in the Morning Star, which shows, sorry, Ken, you haven't got any answers. You're saying all the right things to all the people. Uh, what's your answer? I mean, it just, we don't need a party. We need a movement. Should it be in the Labour Party? Should it be out of the Labour Party? What is it? What's its politics going to be? No answer, no answer, no answer. Um, I'm not really attacking Ken Loach. He isn't a politician. He's an artist. I know he used to be in the WRP. I know he used to be in Left Unity. I know he's a friend, I think, 
of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, or at least they like each other. Um, so I'm not really attacking him. He's not a politician. So his heart's in the right place. Yes, yes, yes. But as a political leader, no, no, no. Um, also, just to, again, just for comrades' information, uh, and we've got a comrade who knows more about it than I do, unfortunately, he's got another meeting as I'm speaking. Uh, but the, um, no surprise, the Chatham House left, or whatever the hell it's called nowadays, officially, we call it the Chatham House left because it's outrageously imposed a gagging order on naming names. I was at the same meeting as Lenin. Uh, well, you're not allowed to say that. Um, come on, comrades, you know, just crazy stuff. To introduce that sort of bourgeois restriction into the labor movement, terrible. Either way, that seems to be turning into a Howard um, Beckett fan club, um, you know, uh, um, a vehicle for his project, whatever the hell that project is. I don't see it having any future. Um, in terms of the left, it will protest quite rightly at Brighton. There will be less comrades, there'll be less people full stop. Loads of CLPs aren't sending delegates. Lots of them this year will be sending right-wing delegates, but there will be just less. I would not predict scenes of uh, uh, masses of delegates waving Palestinian flags in solidarity. Uh, I, I don't expect that. Uh, I think the left will be under attack. Whether Keir Starmer presses through with more purge, uh, whether it's extended to momentum, I haven't got a clue. I just haven't got a clue. Um, does he need to do that? Again, I, I don't know. Um, maybe he looks at the latest opinion polls with Labour enjoying for the first time in eight months, a lead over the Tories and can say, we're now on the road to our recovery as Britain recovers from the pandemic. We've got our recovery. I don't know. But the, the main weapon that Starmer has got is, do you want a Labour government elected? And that's the Achilles heel of the Labour left. Um, his argument would be, my road is the successful road. And uh, the more the opinion polls give him a lead, the more that argument is strong. And the left's idea that, no, what you need to do is keep with uh, Jeremy Corbyn's um, manifesto, uh, I don't think is credible. Yes, in 2017, surprisingly, I readily admit it, um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and it was Jeremy Corbyn, uh, did brilliantly. It's true that Theresa May did awfully. There were those that predicted it, but the same people that predicted the Labour Party doing well also brilliantly predicted that Labour Party would do terribly. So I'm not impressed by, you know, the um, predictive power <laughs> that's sometimes being uh, touted. Suffice to say, uh, the, the main point I'm making uh, is that what we're really talking about here is not so much the acceptability of Keir Starmer's programme however intellectually backed up it's going to be by his Fabian pamphlet that was written by uh, two Blairites. It, it's not about focus groups. It, it's not about ordinary electors. It's about the bourgeoisie and the bourgeois media. And Jeremy Corbyn was never going to be successful. And unless you had an alternative media, a powerful, not the Morning Star, and I'm not saying this in any dismissive way, uh, but a mass media uh, with masses of read readers and watchers and listeners that can set the agenda, Corbyn was never going to win. So what surprised me uh, in 2017, basically, um, I've viewed myself as vindicated in 2019. That is what should have happened, you know, in terms of at least my expectations in 2017. So we have to explain 2017 rather than 2019. There was something different about 2017. And in my view, there's a number of factors which don't need to go into now. Give myself five more minutes. Okay, so what's our answer? Well, we have a definitive answer. Fight in the Labour Party because there's still a fight to be had. This is a historic site of struggle. It's not going to be over in two months time, three months time, although potentially it's not inconceivable to see Starmer 
trying to complete the Blair project of overcoming the split in liberalism. Uh, that is possible. Uh, nonetheless, if that's what his agenda was, one would expect something to happen in the trade union movement, maybe, or are they so desperate for any Labour government, even a liberal Labour government would do? Um, I don't know. We, we, all of that we can see. But anyway, our argument is quite straightforward and it's based on uh, the idea, the original idea of the Labour Party from before 1900. So when the idea was first conceived, that the Labour Party acts as a united front for all trade unions, co-ops, and to use the phrase that was in the successful resolution, all socialistic organisations. And um, what did you see with the Labour Party when it was formed? It had an NEC, a National Executive Committee of 12. And um, on that would have been trade unions and cooperatives. Uh, but also five of those seats were from the socialistic societies. One for the Fabians, two for the centrist independent Labour Party, you know, led by Keir Hardy. Um, Ramsay MacDonald uh, uh, and the like, and then two seats for the openly Marxist, you can question its Marxism, the openly Marxist Social Democratic uh, Federation. So we want uh, the Labour Party to be transformed into such a body again, and what that requires is the removal of the bans. And when comrades have told me Oh, that's all irrelevant. Bans and prescriptions. It's all irrelevant. Well, we've just had four organizations banned. You know, this precisely shows why we should have been fighting around that issue before Corbyn was elected. And certainly as Corbyn was elected, and that should have been implemented under Corbyn's leadership. That could have been won at a Labour Party conference. That is something we could have done, comrades, uh, instead that opportunity was squandered on the basis of just follow Jeremy Corbyn. He knows best. He didn't know best. He didn't know anything. And he was advised, sorry, uh, by idiots, uh, i.e. the brilliant crew um, of exiles from straight left, you know, the Stalinist uh, faction from the old official CPGB. But what else do we say? There needs to be a party, not the Labour Party, but a Marxist party. The best description of that party is called Communist Party, but we're not fussed about the words. A Communist Party, right? A party that's based on democratic centralism where you can openly argue out your differences, but you act as one when it comes to agreed actions that disciplines its MPs tightly, its trade union officials tightly, that puts these people on an average skilled workers wage and a party that is based on a Marxist program of the sort uh, that we saw with Karl Marx, Frederick Engels and others um, draw out uh, for the French Workers Party as we saw uh, with the Erfurt program of uh, German social democracy that inspired the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik program um, that was maintained even after the conquest of um, state power uh, by the working class in 1917. That's the sort of program we need, um, a revolutionary program that uh, envisages a classless, stateless, moneyless uh, society uh, that has a, an immediate program of um, forming the working class into a class, to use the old phrase, into a class, not in itself, but for itself, into a party, a mass party, not a, a tiny sect, a mass party uh, that, yes, uh, can then lead the Labour Party through the trade unions, through the constituency Labour parties, and can fight the battle of ideas out uh, with the likes of uh, the Fabians, uh, can battle the... Uh, um, uh, battle uh, uh, ideas with centrists and all sorts of uh, others. And those that tell us uh, that the Labour Party couldn't have been a united front because of the presence of the Fabians, I'm sorry. Just look at the Russian Soviets, and I'm taking the phrase directly uh, from Trotsky, 
what did Trotsky describe the Russian Soviets as, quote unquote, a united front of a special kind. Why special? Because they're permanent. And what you saw in Russia from 1905 uh, with the formation of the Petrograd Soviet and in February 1917 is all manner of different factions sending delegates, all manner of different factions having representatives uh, on the Soviets. The first president of the Petrograd Soviet was a non-aligned uh, lawyer. Um, he he'd ended up joining the Mensheviks and then, as Trotsky says in his book on 1905, then disappearing from history. But anyone who thinks that um, in 1917, Plekhanov and his followers didn't have people in the Soviets, well, of course they did. Uh, and the idea that that invalidates because these people were Russian chauvinists and uh, um, allies of um, um, Anglo-French imperialism, that that invalidated the Soviets as a united front. No, uh, but what happens is that these people are replaced, their delegates are replaced. And that's precisely what we would envisage uh, in the Labour Party. So uh, a mass communist party, a mass Marxist party fights, wins the battle uh, of ideas, forms the working class into a potential ruling class. And that is a realistic strategy. Uh, to overthrow the government. And as part of that, of course, this is an international party, a party that's working with similar parties across the face of the planet that is organized into a new international. That is a realistic road to socialism, a realistic way of dealing with climate change. I would argue it's the only realistic course, but the left uh, really wants to carry on with failure as usual. And I do think that uh, we cannot afford failure as usual any longer.